who could like what like an endangered species. Stop it. So we couldn't so get them. And Hillary, like actual little small gophers. Little small gophers. And my dad, my dad's like, man, I kill them when I see them. Um, so anyway, there was some stuff with Hillary that would have helped us with the gophers, but then the gopher thing went away. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sorry. That's yeah. so funny. So 2016. I bet if everyone voted like Phil, the world would be, America would be a better place. Hi, you're listening to A Jew and a Gentile. I'm Lauren Burns. And I'm Hanin Razouk. Guess who's the Jew? An ancient business, a modern piece of glasswork. Down on the corner that you walk each day in passing. The elderly says close. Welcome to episode three. As always, we're starting with the Nadashkeet of the week. If you are new to this podcast, Nadashkeet is a Yiddish word that means everyday matters. This week, we're talking about something a little new to our podcasting process, Friday Dialogues. Every Friday night, Lauren and I host a discussion with three new people where we talk about our personal interactions with the cultural artifact of the week. We get a lot of new ideas and we learn a lot from different perspectives, all in preparation for recording our podcast episode the next day. Yeah, so this Friday, two days ago, Hanin made some fantastic gluten-free pumpkin cookies, and we all drank LaCroix and tea in our newly designed garage space. <laughs> so shout out to Connor Pritchett, Shiler Turpel, and Noah Love. Thanks, guys, for participating in our conversation. If you have any interest in participating in these dialogues, we'd love to hear your ideas. And next week, I might even try making a kumquat chocolate tort from the kumquat tree we have in our yard. So if that's any incentive. Or if it's a deterrent, knowing now you cook, Lauren. <laughs> okay, seriously, though. If you want to be a part of these conversations, we'd love to have you. At the end of every episode, we'll highlight our Friday Dialogue Team of the Week. And then we'll reveal the following week's cultural artifact. So if you have any interest in participating in a conversation about it, even through Zoom, you can email us ahead of time. This week's cultural artifact is voting ballots. Yeah, so 2020 has been a crazy year in about every way you could name, honestly. People are really suffering from it. We found, as we were researching this week in the Washington Post, that a federal emergency hotline for people in emotional distress registered more than a 1,000% increase in April 2020 than April of last year. Yeah, I think that's pretty indicative of how insane this year has been. Yeah. We are grieving the loss of a lot of things, both health and financial stability, healthy businesses and work settings, in-person college experiences, racial peace, and so much more. Sadly, we really don't have control over a lot of these things. Yeah, but ironically, we're also electing an American president this year. So in some funny ways, as we're experiencing a lack of control in so many other areas of our lives, we're kind of given some degree of control in this political area right now. As we're now confronted with our responsibility as actual participants in our country through voting rather than just victims of 2020, we are wondering, is this a kind of control that we feel capable of handling? What does our vote even mean? We'll discuss this and more in our next section, but we wanted to include a couple fun random things we learned this week as we researched voting ballots. First, as we were researching, we found that historically about only half of the country votes yeah, that's really interesting. And we go into the podcast later to unpack some of why that might be yeah. and, and what that comes from. But interesting statistic for sure. 
Second, we found that Pew Research found amongst all registered voters, 6% say that this year, 2020, is the first election year that they're voting. So these people may have registered in the past, but didn't actually go about into the voting process. This year, they are motivated to vote. So we're really curious, why is that? I know they're making an appearance this year. Yeah. So coming out the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Thirdly, the Knight Foundation found that out of 41% of people who didn't vote in the 2016 election, almost three-fourths of them either didn't like either candidate or thought their vote didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So that was some of the motivation behind deciding not to go out and vote, at least in 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fourth thing is that if you're from Southern California, you might be voting for some positions you weren't even aware of or that feel kind of honestly random, such as water district representative. On some ballots, there's different positions for being a mosquito district representative. (laughs) Kind of weird. But so we were kind of curious as to how a role actually ends up on the ballot. And it sort of just waters down to if there are tax dollars that create a budget for a certain position, you have to be then elected to be in charge of that budget. So that's how those roles end up on the ballot. Totally. And fourthly, if you're thinking voting for a water district representative or a mosquito district representative is weird, here's a couple weirder ballot initiatives in American history. One, in 2010, the majority of Denver voters rejected Initiative 30 in the polls. This was a proposal to set up a commission to track aliens. So they voted no on that. Denver doesn't have a commission to track aliens. Ah, I'm so disappointed. Dang it. Um, And then secondly, in 2013, voters in Berkeley, California, rejected a proposal for a daytime ban of sitting on sidewalks. So if you're in Berkeley to this day, you can sit down on a sidewalk in the middle of the day because that was rejected in the polls. Yeah. The second question we always ask on this podcast is, how does our culture artifact better show us the grace of God? But before we can get there, I think we need to do a little more unpacking, starting with our own personal experiences. So, Hanin, how have you interacted with voting ballots? My voting story, my ballot story, is one of this being my first time voting. I got my ballot by mail and spent about probably an hour and a half trying to do a little bit of research and then going ahead and checking my boxes. It was an experience I would describe as one being hopeful, but also a little disappointing. I went in with hope and honestly excitement as a poli-sci major, just doing something that's a real life manifestation of all the things that I've learned about. But at the same time, came out of it a little disappointed because it's kind of an overwhelming process. In order Mm. to be a really informed voter, you'd have to do a lot of research behind a lot of the different propositions and different people who are on the ballot. So it's kind of an overwhelming process. That's interesting. I totally relate to that. As for my story, I was two weeks shy of voting in the 2016 presidential election. So this also is the first election I can vote in. I have an Oregon residence, even though I live in Los Angeles most of the time. So I'm actually voting for Clackamas County in Oregon. And I've actually had a lot of fun so far. One, because like Hanin, I'm incredibly interested in politics. That's why I'm studying political science. So it feels like what she said, a manifestation of what I've been studying. And then secondly, because I worked for a grassroots lobbying group in Salem, Oregon, Oregon's capital, last summer. And I learned straight up that voting in your local elections means so much more than voting in a federal election. 
We literally went to the Oregon State Capitol almost daily and lobbied every day for representatives to vote on bills that would directly affect my life like the following week as an Oregonian. So I've been really excited, honestly, as I'm filling out my ballot, because even though I can feel like my presidential vote doesn't have as much of a significant say, I know that my local votes actually mean a lot. That's really interesting and something that we want to unpack later on the podcast as well. So as we've unpacked the voting process this week, we have realized there are two pretty obvious trends in our voting behavior, and they're that you either vote or you don't vote. We're going to pack some motivations behind both of these trends and behaviors, starting with not voting. So why do we not vote? First, people don't vote because it's not a very visually stimulating process. During our Friday dialogue two nights ago, we were looking at a big, colorful poster of Israel, something Hanin shockingly has in her garage. Represent. <laughs> so we wondered <laughs> if more people would want to take part in the voting process if our ballots were as exciting and visually stimulating as this colorful poster. Like, can you imagine if we had a scratch and sniff ballot? <laughs> I literally registered to vote just to see what Kamala <laughs> Harris smells like. <laughs> The voting registration, in contrast to a scratch and sniff, is um, a really boring experience. Honestly, it can kind of feel like you are at the DMV. There's political jargon that only makes sense to a few people who really know about the electoral process, and it feels intimidatingly professional and sometimes foreign. Voting isn't simulating, and it can literally feel like you are at the DMV. But we were also talking about, on the other hand, if the 2020 voting process mailed out color scratch and sniff pellets, we might also see a trend in not voting because colorful scratch and sniff ballots are quite honestly pretty wacky. And people want to be able to actually trust the voting process and not feel like they're participating in some kind of weird party game. So Mm. I don't know even if these visual stimulating experiences would increase higher voter turnout. Right. So the lack of visual stimulation then can't be the only reason people don't take time to vote. So let's keep unpacking some other reasons why people don't vote. Another thing we thought through is that people don't vote because understanding the American political system can feel a little bit out of our reach. Yeah, honestly. The United States has 328 million residents as of 2019. There's an age-old electoral college that does some fancy work transforming the popular vote. There are countless news agencies that represent very different understandings of what's actually happening politically. So thinking about participating in the voting process in a country like America can feel honestly as big and daunting as God himself. It's a huge thing out of my control that I honestly don't fully understand. So this might be a huge factor in why people don't go out and vote. The third reason people don't vote might come from an ancient Greek emotion called ascetia. This was termed by John Cassian, who is a monk and theologian living in the 5th century. To unpack this term and this emotion a little bit more, we did some research and we found that in her LA Times article titled The Demon of Ascetia, Kathleen Norris unpacks this emotion as a spiritual and mental slothliness. Norris sees a distinct path to ascetia in contemporary culture. She says that in this hyped up world, broadcast and internet news media emerged as ascetia's perfect vehicles, demanding that we care all at once about a suicide bombing, a celebrity divorce, 
and the latest advance in nanotechnology. But the ceaseless bombardment of information can honestly make us indifferent and truly politically lazy. Yeah. So when there's so many things begging for our attention, begging for a slice of our caring capacity and our faithfulness, caring about the American political system and actually participating in it can feel honestly like our last priority. And something that we are kind of indifferent to. Totally. Because of acedia. Yeah. The history of the word acedia in the Oxford English Dictionary is really quite fascinating. The most interesting part is that the word acedia was deleted from the dictionary in 1933, but after World War II, it was brought back. So people were wondering, why did we need this word all of a sudden? The post-war mood is one of the answers people have arrived at. The violence from the war had been so horrible all over the world. The Holocaust in Europe and the atomic bomb in Japan. And in America, the overwhelming confrontation with wide-scale evil created a demand for our attention that led us to feeling indifferent. It led to acedia. Yeah. The evolution for the need of this word acedia continues today. It's born from us being oversaturated with information, but little real knowledge. A constant war for our attention that is always drawing us to be distracted, leaving us apathetic toward other aspects of our lives, especially voting. Voting doesn't feel necessary. We can operate from the assumption and the illusion that if we forget to mail in our ballot, not a lot of things will change. Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi will still throw daggers at each other. (laughs) Amy Coney Barrett will continue going through her trial to be the next Supreme Court justice. And major news headlines will still keep giving us very different views of what's actually happening in the world. Yeah. To sum up this reason, people don't vote because they don't feel like their caring capacity or their faithfulness is really needed. And the bystander effect sets in. If I don't vote, the world will keep turning. Just like if I don't check to see if the man who fell down the stairs next to me is okay, someone else will come along and help him out. Lastly, people don't vote because we don't see the immediate consequences of voting. Yeah. Patrick Deneen does a really good job of explaining this idea through a term he calls presentism. So he wrote in a book published in 2018 called Why Liberalism Failed that this idea of presentism is really present in the Western age. He says people have an inability to see their own lives and actions as part of a continuum of time. And hence, they don't consider long-term implications of their actions and deeds as part of a long-term human community. Radical individualism spurs people to act only for the short term, discounting the consequences of their actions upon future generations and trapping themselves in what Deneen calls the illusion of the eternal present. Quite honestly, we're used to investing in the today. When it comes to thinking about our futures, that takes a lot of work. And we really haven't been trained to invest in that in a really profound or true way. All right, so... We've unpacked a bit of why people don't vote. Let's go to our second question. Why do people vote? First, we wanted to say people vote because we're honestly secret idealists. In his book, The City of God, Augustine explains his view of the ultimate role and end of the state. He says, within the framework of political and legal systems, the state is a divinely ordained punishment for fallen man with its power to command, coerce, punish, and even to put to death. God shapes the ultimate ends of man's existence through the state. So honestly, when I hear Augustine talk like that, I intrinsically respond, 
whoa, Augustine, hold up. The state isn't that big of a deal, right? But in fact, for us to be passionate voters and for the political system to function, we might have to take a page from Augustine by practicing what we call ballot idealism. How is idealism a helpful motivator in spurring us to vote? Well, to start, if people don't have the mindset that their vote is important, maybe even the most important, the whole process would fall apart. You don't participate in things when you don't feel like you're needed. So essentially, in order for the process to work, we really need to believe that our vote is the most important vote. While it might be a bit idealistic to say that your vote is dramatically needed in the federal election, it really is dramatically needed in the local election. Yeah, your local community is more fragile in a sense. And if the population of a small town does not feel idealistic about voting in their own elections, the town would simply fall apart. This past summer, I did an internship with California Policy Center, and my supervisor was talking to me about the importance of local voting and shared that he actually trades his preferred presidential vote for 12 of his friends' local <laughs> political votes wow. that he prefers and believes in because he really does think that there is such a great importance in local politics and voting, and even more so in comparison to federal. Yeah, totally. So... Ballot idealism motivates us to get out and vote. But at the same time, such idealism can honestly be dangerous too. In seeing our role as voters as being pretty powerful, we might also project that ballot idealism into political idealism, as if somehow politics is our cosmic hope. Politics feels as big and ambiguous as God, and political idealism might encourage us to see voting as sort of a prayer to the political cosmic hope, by which all wrongs will somehow be made right. Yeah. So in reality, we know that politics isn't our savior, but it's also not the devil. It's a tool for us to better navigate how to interact as humans on earth. It's a chance for us to practice practical wisdom. All right, now that we've done some unpacking, we can answer our greater question. How is voting a vessel of God's grace? Voting gives us an opportunity to practice how to wisely proportion out our hope in something that is not God, but that we are still called to participate in. Yeah, and secondly, voting reminds us that while our political system is impermanent, it will fail, it will pass away, our neighbor living right next door to us is the most permanent thing ever. Your voting decisions affect the person living right next door to you. So then when we approach the ballot, we're drawn to remember that as independent as we might think we are, our actions are never isolated from affecting the community. Yeah. And thirdly, we wanted to say that voting gives us a really practical example of the gospel as we choose leaders who we think will best run our country. Ephesians 1 and John 1 say that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world as his children. We make our voting decision based on the political agendas and character of the prospective leader, yet God made his decision to elect us without looking at our platforms or agendas. He chose us simply because he's a gracious God. What a picture of the gospel. The third question we always ask on this podcast is, how do we practically respond? So to start, if you feel unmotivated to vote, ask yourself why. Could it be a soul slothliness? 
and indifference to being politically engaged. And on the other hand, if you're unable to get sleep at night because you're so concerned with the outcome of this election, ask yourself, why have I turned politics into my cosmic hope? Additionally, vote. In a way, we do need to be idealists for our country to work as a democracy, which truly is a gift. If your ballot wasn't sent to you by mail, there's good news. You can still actually vote in person. Check out our podcast notes to see where to go. Thanks for tuning in to this week's discussion. Next week, we'll be talking about Halloween trick-or-treating and traditions. If you're interested in participating in a dialogue about this, send us an email. See our podcast notes for details. Additionally, you have five more days to RSVP for a conversation we're hosting this Friday about Christian justice and critical race theory with voices like Sean McDowell and Veda Hedgman. If you're in the LA area, we would love to see you. The RSVP is in our notes. Have a great week.